Our Father in heaven, we are thankful today for a new day. Thank you that you brought us back to be able to examine once again the priorities that you would have us uh, take to heart, especially in these last days as we prepare for your very soon return. And tonight, Lord, or this afternoon, as we take a look at our third priority, we pray that you would um, give us uh, an understanding, give us conviction, help us to, to see uh, this priority, this biblical priority from a perspective uh, or an angle that we have never thought of or applied it before. So we thank you for answering our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. So we've been considering in this seminar the top priorities that one ought to have as a modern disciple of Christ. And Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, outlines in his epistle what they ought to be in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. And so that's it's been our context. So one of our first priorities was that we must learn to seriously pray. We must learn to seriously pray. Uh, it cannot be business as usual. Uh, our prayer life has to have a very distinct um, change in, in, in its expression, and its, uh, it must reflect spiritual maturity. Uh, we must not pray like our children. We must not pray as we used to pray three, year, three or five years ago in our spiritual journey. If, in fact, we believe that we grow in Christ and that prayer is learned or is taught, then we must, we must see a growth in, in the way that we pray. Um, and so we must make it a priority. And if it's not, we must reprioritize and make it a priority. Um, the second is to choose to love fervently and unconditionally. So let's take a look at our handout number two. And, um, and I wrote a few pointers there of things that we did touch on, discuss um, towards the end of our last presentation on what are the best practices to love others as Christ loves us as a prior personal priority. The first one is golden rule, love as you would want others to love you. Can you agree with that? Yes. Um, you know, that's taking the golden rule and just applying it to this, to this principle. The second one says, make a conscious choice to love regardless of emotions and feelings and leave the consequences to God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. You know, and that takes, that takes discipline. That takes an act of the will. We have to exercise ourselves to... to to make these kind of choices. And my sister here, yesterday she shared with us um, something that, you know, that, that fits with this principle. Would you share with us, for those who weren't here yesterday, maybe you can do a little recap and then tell us what happened after the class. Well, actually I was accusing myself that I'd been too bold in sharing something so personal and, you know, in front of people I really don't know. And after class, there were about four ladies here that were almost oh, strangers to me. I don't know them. And they just asked if they could pray with me. I thought, well, that's very nice. Mm. Very nice. And I appreciated it. We did have prayer. Well, this morning I got a phone call from my problem dealt with my mother and my sister. And I got a phone call from my mother that completely gave me information mm -hmm. that I never would have imagined in a thousand years. <laughs> uh, I could go into more detail, but if you would have told me 24 hours ago that that would have happened, I'm like, no, no way. Mm. And I thought, Lord, how'd that happen? Thought, Those ladies prayed <laughs> with me. Amen. Amen. There's corporate prayer 
yes. really strengthened me that God hears prayers because Amen. I don't yeah. want to bore you with too many details, but just yeah. something yeah. happened, two yeah. things particular yeah. that I never would have imagined. Amen. Yes. Amen. Yes. Isn't that awesome? Yes. That is just wonderful. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for being willing to share that. Wow. That's wonderful. Number three, specifically ask to be filled with the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5. 5. And, uh, and when I say specifically, I mean very deliberately and intentionally. Uh, verbalize it. Lord, baptize me, fill me with the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Claim that promise and God will answer it. He will answer it. Number four, walk as if you were traveling down the Jericho Road. And help the helpless. Mm, just keep that setting, that context, continually in your mind. Uh, we're always on the Jericho Road. Circumstances will come. You know, that man walking, going down that road, that Samaritan, he, he did not anticipate or, or expect to see what he saw. It came to him suddenly. And, and in that very moment, he, he responded in love. And we must walk down a Jericho Road in our journey everywhere we go. Uh, number five, overlook spiritual state for the sake of putting to practice the principle of love. And Christ is our ultimate example with that, isn't it? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that was the greatest, you know, revelation of selfless love. And he, he did it for us. And should, how much more should we? Or can, can we not follow in the steps of Jesus? Of course we can. So, and then the Brex practices to love as others, as, as, to love others as Christ, um, as a corporate priority, in other words, as, as a body, as a congregation, as a church. Here were a few examples. Uh, benevolent fund. How many of you churches have a, a benevolent fund or Good Samaritan fund? Sure, sure. And uh, which is typically, traditionally, the fund that receives funds during what, what time? Yeah. yeah. Communion services, yeah. So, um, so that benevolent fund is 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 a way to to be to tangibly show love as a family uh, to those in need. Community service center. How many of you have a community service center near your churches? Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, that's that's a tremendous way to to show love to others uh, instead of just saying, "Okay, well, be at peace, keep warm." You know, like we read in James, yeah, we, we tangibly demonstrate that love. Uh, number three, random acts of kindness by small groups and then, then sharing experiences together. Um, you know, that's just, you know, a, a suggestion, a, another way to, to mobilize the church to be intentional and in saying, let's think about others more than ourselves. What can we do for somebody that's needed help for a long time? A, 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 a renovation in their home or work in their yard or, you know, or different things like that. And being able to mobilize small groups within the church to do that, um, not only will create a bond among those that actually participate and, and share something in common, but then coming together to share, like you shared with us just now, you know, sharing a testimony of how the Lord worked. That's always a wonderful blessing. And then involvement in charity causes in the community, you know, um, I think that ev presence evangelism is one aspect of evangelism that we often really don't think too much about because we have proclamation evangelism, public evangelism, 
But presence evangelism is, is, is being visible in the community intentionally and, and, uh, and being able to, to be involved. And when the community sees that, oh, that Adventist church, oh, yes, they're very involved. They, they, you know, they participate. They show up. They do this and that in our community. You will be known by, love that, you know, by the love that you have for others. And so that's how we'll be known as the disciples of Christ. So these are, these are things that you can compare notes to uh, with others or, or with your own notes and be able to put to practice. Uh, at the very end there, someone asked for Mar- Martin Luther King Jr.'s quote that I shared with you. I did put it there. The best I could find of the source was it's actually taken from a book uh, entitled Strength to Love. Strength to Love. And, um, and it's a collection of his sermons, some of his classic sermons. And this was a quote from one of his sermons. And, um, and it was from a sermon he preached in 1957. Uh, that's included in that collection of sermons in the book Strength to Love. Um, so you can, you can have it there. And so today we're going to continue with our third priority, our third priority as written in 1 Peter. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 4. All right. And we'll begin with verse 7 and then uh, read through the first and second priority. Then we'll come to the third. All right, and... Peter wrote these things, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. That was priority number one. Priority number two. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. All right, now priority number three. In verse nine, be hospitable to one another. Without grumbling. Mm. Um, The New Living Translation puts it this way. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Wow, that's that's really saying it like it is, huh? Very specific. The New, uh, the Good News Translation, the Good News Translation says, Open your homes to each other without complaining. Open your homes to each other without complaining. So most translations, most, use the word hospitable or hospitality, like the one I just read. Be hospitable. And the root word in the Greek, or you get the word hospitality or hospitable in the English, the the root word is phileo. Does that word sound familiar to you? It's one of the, the, the love words in the, expressed in the Greek. Phileo, which means brotherly love. Brotherly love. So be hospitable. Root word is phileo. And so if you've been a part of a church community for a long time, if you've been in the church for, for years, you, you, know, you begin to, to listen to conversations or, or even talking from the front. And, uh, and you'll notice how some words or phrases are often repeated and repeated and repeated to the point that they're overused and it becomes um, you know lingo or, or or wordings or terminology that that 
you know, are, are hurt so often within our circle that, that uh, it loses its, its meaning. You know what I mean? Um, can you think of, of some examples off the top of your head? Words within the church that are overused and to the point that they sometimes lose their, their punch and their meaning. Any words come to mind? Stewardship. Okay. You know, the truth. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one word that I never thought of it this way, but, but yeah, there's some truth to it, and that is the word Christian. Think about that, because I would have to say that more, more than anything else, more than any other way, we use that word as an adjective, don't we? Christian music, Christian this and Christian that. But did you know in the Bible, Christian is used three times, and never once is it used as an adjective. It's, it's a noun. Describing human beings that share a common, you know, faith or, or you know, a community that have something in common. And um, so maybe Christian is a word that we have overused and, uh, and it's lost its true meaning. One, another word which, which I can agree with is the word fellowship. Oh, yeah. See, isn't that true? Yeah. It's like Fellowship. I mean, wow. I mean, that is a word that we, I think, overuse within our Christian circle. See, I use it as an adjective there. You know, within our, within our circle, right? Coming, um, because when was the last time that you went out with your colleagues after work for fellowship? You know, no, you, outside of the church context, fellowship is just not, not a word, not a word. You know, you don't use, you never use it that way. But in church, what do we have? We have fellowship luncheons that are held in what kind of hall? Fellowship hall. And we, and we get together for fellowship in our fellowship groups and, and sweet fellowship and, um, and so on and so forth. But do we really know, do we really know what fellowship means anymore? Do we really know what it really means? Is it just another you know, social gathering, or does it involve something much deeper, a much deeper level of, of friendship? Well, we can determine the meaning of fellowship by examining it within the New Testament context. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to show you from the New Testament the multiple use of the word fellowship and, um, and how it's used in the Greek and how in the English translations, we, we have more than one use of it. And, um, and as we take a look at this, we'll understand what this word really means. So, to do that, we have to find the Greek word behind the English term fellowship. And do you know what that Greek word is? The Greek word is koinonia. Yes, you've heard that word before? Koinonia is the Greek word that's translated fellowship. And, uh, and it's, it's a concept that I believe encapsulates, encapsulates the essence of Peter's third priority, koinonia. And you'll see that as we, as we go along here. The third priority, if it was summed up in one word, it would be koinonia. Koinonia. 
But what does that word really mean, and how is it used in the Bible? Well, let's let's find out. Again, in the New Testament, there's a whole spectrum of meaning. Um, and we can find the same Greek word, koinonia, but used with different English words. Um, let me take you to the first example. Let's go to Acts 2.42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is the most common use of the word koinonia, or the most common translation. Uh, and I'm reading from the New King James, so that's, that's the version I'm using. Um, Acts 2.42 and the Bible says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, New King James, in the apostles' doctrine and what? Fellowship. And fellowship. You have that, okay? In the breaking of bread and in words or in prayers. And so in that verse, Koinonia is translated fellowship. And it focuses on the relationship between believers, between believers, do you see that? Because in verse 41, it's speaking of those that not only received the word, but were also baptized. And in being baptized, they were added to them. And so it, it, it clearly, the context is clearly a, a, a body of, of believers that have been joined into the body through baptism. And so then verse 42, they, that pronoun they, is referring to those who were received into the body, the church, the believers. Uh, and they continued in fellowship. And so that's one word of the used koinonia. Um, the second is found in 2 Corinthians. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13. And here's another use of the word koinonia. And in the King James Version, in the New King James Version, my English translation doesn't even use the word fellowship, even though koinonia is the Greek word, you see. So in verse 13, we read, While through proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of their confession to the gospel of Christ and for their liberal sharing with them. And all men. Some versions say the generosity, the generosity of their contribution. Others say in the generos generosity of their participation, in the sharing, contribution, participation. Those are English words that come from the Greek word koinonia. So koinonia is translated sharing or contribution, and it expresses generosity it expresses sharing it expresses something that is 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 given to another sharing bringing others together into a common purpose or or a common cause so being able to share together and as a result of contributing or or giving hmm. the third word is found in philippians 3:10 let's go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And here, koinonia is translated yet in a different way. It uses a third, uh, a, different, a different word altogether. And it's translated in the sharing in. In the sharing in. Uh, in verse 10 there says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection... And in the sharing in his sufferings, 
the New King James will say, and the fellowship of his sufferings. But other translations will, will say, and in the sharing in his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Do, you, do some of your versions say, in the sharing in? Is that what your version says? Yours says fellowship of sharing? Okay. Other, other translations would just really just say the sharing in. And that conveys the idea of participation. And so you see how in all these different translations, we see it reflect the true nature of koinonia. And again, it depicts the whole of Christian living. And the essence of koinonia, if, if it could be summed up in, in one word, it's participation. Participation. Participating. Being a part of you know, we get, if you were to break down the word participation, you would break it down to its most simple, you know, root, and that would be part, part. So koinonia, koinonia is when different individuals feel a part of, they participate, they join together, koinonia, koinonia. And it's because we share something in common. See, at the heart of koinonia is coming to the place where we identify an experience or identify um, qualities and values that we share in common. Uh, that's why in Spanish, you find the common expression, uh, any Hispanics here? Okay. You know the expression, mi casa, tu casa, right? Uh, do you know what that means in English? Yeah, I know, I know. It's like, um, of course, it's such a common Spanish expression that we, we know it in English. My house is your house. That's participation. We, we share something in common. Um, you know, step into my, my abode and my house is your house. My space is your space. We share something in common, you see. That's, that's getting to the essence of koinonia. My house is your house. That is to say... Be hospitable to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Peter's priority. And you know, you know that feeling of sharing something in common with someone else. You know that feeling? You know, um, Can someone share snapshots of, of when you have sensed that? Even here at camp meeting. Has there been moments where, where you, you feel that, 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 that sense of, uh, of sharing something in common. Do you have snapshots of that? What does that look like? Oh, I, I thought of an example just by seeing Edelgard here. I was a pastor in Alpena, and, uh, and Katie's son, Tony, as well, and Don, we all went on a mission trip to Peru. Remember that, Edelgard? Yeah, what year was that? Yeah, yeah, I think it was 2006 or something. Yeah, and, um, but remember this? We, we got these shirts, right? All 20-some of us got, got T-shirts with our logo, right, on the shirt, right? And do you remember that feeling, Edelgard, stepping out into a foreign country, into the airport, which, by the way, 80% of the group or so had never stepped out of the United States. <laughs> so you can only imagine the nerves and the excitement. And stepping out into this hot airport there in the capital of Peru and, and um, wearing the same T-shirt, you know, it gave us a sense of belonging. You know, we shared something in common. Um, we, we, we just, 
we just walked with a sense of confidence that we had arrived. We are here for a purpose, right? Something as simple as a t-shirt gave us a sense of koinonia, you see? Um, or walking through a crowded marketplace in, in, uh, in Nicaragua. In, you know, I've, I remember one memory I have of that we were on a mission trip and we had to walk through the, the city center and it was crowded, so crowded. I think it was some kind of holiday or something. But there was like 12 of us in the group and we had to get through this crowd. How are we going to do this? And then we simply came up with the idea, let's hold hands. Single file, hold hands tight. And we'll make it through this crowd. It was, I mean, it was tight. But we made it through the crowd, 12 or some of us, holding hands together. And something as simple as, as holding one another's hands gave us a sense of koinonia. Because we were sharing something in common, right? And um, those little, those are little snapshots of the essence of koinonia. Yeah. Another snapshot I have to share with you is... On the way back from Peru, we were on the plane, and we sat down. I sat down in, this, in the middle seat, and then there was a window seat, and there was this lady, a stranger I'd never met before. She was a friendly lady, and we smiled at each other, and we talked for a minute, and, uh, and then we just kind of you know, sat back and, and relaxed and, for the flight. And, uh, and at one point, she reached down into her bag, and, uh, and she pulled out a Bible. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, she's, she's a Christian, and... And uh, maybe we'll strike up another conversation, I'm sure. And, uh, wow, that's good to know. Wow, we share something in common, you know. But then that was not it. Then she dug dip deeper into her bag and pulled out a Sabbath school quarterly <laughs> to study her lesson. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, <laughs> we really share something in common now. And, um, and sure enough, we... You know, we, we chatted and talked about um, the, our small Adventist world. And, um, but again, that was, that was a little snapshot of koinonia. Because we were sharing something in common. We were sharing something in common. And so, and so the scriptures use this koinonia and get this. It's kind of a twofold dynamic description. Koinonia... It's used to describe what connects us to God and to each other through Christ. See, that's, that's koinonia, the biblical definition of koinonia. It's, it's, it describes what connects us to God and consequently to each other through Christ. And, and if you think about it, koinonia is what describes what heaven was and is like was in the sense that when God created heavenly beings, there was koinonia. Because koinonia connected angelic beings to God and to each other. The angels were united together in harmony. Hmm. And it could be said that it was Lucifer, who once had a very interactive participation with God, because of his role that's, that's described to us as being a covering cherub. A covering cherub. Come with me to Ezekiel chapter 28. We're going somewhere with this as we all of a sudden um, find ourselves focusing in on heaven. But in particular to Lucifer. Uh, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. 
Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, and look at verse 14. This is how we know what kind of position Lucifer once held in heaven. Uh, Verse 14. It says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Let's pause there for a moment. Do you notice that he was the anointed cherub who covers? Now, when you look at pictures, there's no pictures here of the sanctuary, but when you look at the holy place, or the most holy place, rather, you see the the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. And what do you notice? How many angels did God instruct Moses to mold on top of the mercy seat in the Old Testament? Two. There was two angels there. That's right. And did you know that cherub is the singular form and cherubim is plural form? So cherub is one. Cherubim is a plural form. There's There's two or more, cherubim. And so he was one of the two cherubs or the cherubim that covered the glory of God on the throne. And this was true koinonia. Do you see the koinonia there? Because it was cherubim, more than one. So there was fellowship or sharing something in common with one another as cherubim and with God as, as they were in his holy presence. So koinonia was 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 exercised or, or, or experienced or felt there at the very center, immediate presence of God. We see koinonia there. And it's interesting that God, did you ever think about this when you look at the Genesis account where uh, it says that they put a, a flaming, there, there, there was a, once after sin, they were cast out of the garden, that um, there in chapter four, chapter three, it says, and he drove out the man, you know the story, right, in Genesis three, um, and it says, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. Hmm. Because, I don't know about you, but since I was in Crater or Beginner's class, where I see the pictures, the pictures of, of this scene, what do you see? You see one angel holding one sword. But if we're going to go biblical, if we're going to go to the true text, it says cherubim. So there was more than one. And you know what I've often thought, and I wondered... Two angels? Oh, two angels. And then you kind of wonder if the flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life might have been the glory of God's presence, the mercy seat, as it were, between the two covering cherubim. And so could it be, could it be that we see here the first, you know, 3D illustration or depiction of the way that leads to salvation. It's only through the, the mercy seat, the covenant. And so, so one can only speculate, but you can only imagine. But one of them was no longer Lucifer. He used to be one of the two. One of the two, as depicted by the, 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 the mercy seat and the covenant. But why was Lucifer no longer one of the two? Why? Hmm. Well, let's, let's examine that a little closely. You see, Lucifer, once before, held that ex- exalted position of koinonia with God, a special koinonia with God that no other angels did have. As we continue with Ezekiel, 
uh, chapter 28, we, we notice that in verse 14, it also makes mention of the holy mountain. The term holy mountain is used as a reference to the throne of God. Um, you see that used in other passages, and that is often the immediate context, the throne of God. So Lucifer was there. It says that he was there on the holy mountain of God. Stones of fire makes mention of the stones of fire. In Ezekiel's vision, these stones of fire were seen directly below the throne of God, and Lucifer was there. So Lucifer was in the immediate presence of God, but then something, but then something disturbing began to happen. Lucifer became envious and jealous of the Son of God. And it was only a matter of time that these strange thoughts turned into accusing words. And I'm going to read to you from the story of redemption, uh, page 14. The story of redemption, page 14. And listen to what Ellen G. White writes here, describing what was taking place in the mind of Lucifer uh, in that moment. She writes, Lucifer was envious and jealous of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yet when all the angels bowed to Jesus to acknowledge his supremacy and high authority and rightful rule, he bowed with them. But his heart was filled with envy and hatred. Hmm. Is that interesting? He bowed with them, but his heart was filled with envy and hatred. You know, the fall of Lucifer didn't happen overnight from one moment to the next. But koinonia did become less and less of a priority. Hmm. You see, rebellion began in the heart before it expressed itself outwardly. He, he, was, he was going through the motions, even bowing down before God, but in his heart, bitterness was festering. Envy and hatred began in the heart before it expressed itself outwardly. And... Paul's description of men in the last days can also be said of Lucifer in his first days. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Come with me to 2 Timothy. Uh, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, look, look at verse, verse 2. For men will become, will be lovers of what? Of who? Of themselves. Lovers of themselves. Are we told that that's precisely what was Lucifer's problem? He became a lover of himself. The Bible says that he, he took pride. He, he was, became prideful. Lover of himself. He, he saw himself exalted above other angels. He became a lover of himself. This speaks of men but also speaks of what happened to Lucifer. And notice verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Having a form of godliness. Again, Lucifer even went to the point that he bowed in worship before God, even though in his heart he was holding to bitterness and envy and hatred. He had a form of godliness in bowing, but he was denying its power. This is, this is, again, a description of Lucifer. And then Paul just continues in verse 9. Look at verse 9. But they will pro- progress no further. Didn't that happen to Lucifer as well? He didn't progress any further. 
for their folly will be manifest will be will be manifest to all yes two thirds of the angels became aware of lucifer's internal thoughts his his folly was manifest to all the other angels as theirs also was and so you cannot harbor rebellion and bitterness in the heart for long before it shows its ugly face lucifer pulled it off for a time a short time but his folly became manifest his folly became manifest and as a result war broke out in heaven you know what the revelation says michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels but they did not prevail nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer so sweet koinonia with god <laughs> sweet koinonia with god was fractured fractured it was broken accusations were made lies believed trust was broken fellowship was destroyed yeah and it grieved the heart of god one third of the angels were cast out with lucifer so he became known as satan and the accuser and so koinonia with his with holy angels was and is no longer his and so why 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 did i bring him into the picture why 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 did i you know create this context because as we as we go continue further on we'll discover why satan hates koinonia so much and why he is earnest in destroying what was once his and because he is so bitter for what he lost he's going to make sure that if he can have it if he can no longer experience koinonia ha huh, neither will you neither will you as a believer as a disciple of Christ and neither will the church and so that's why it's his one of his priorities to destroy koinonia because it's no longer his but let's let's switch gears for a moment as we ask ourselves a question what so what unites us with one another you know we talked about sharing in common koinonia is sharing in something in common with one another what is at the heart of koinonia that that you and i share together well to discover this let's go to 1 john where john makes mention of koinonia quite often uh 1 john chapter 1 1 john chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 Hmm. If it's in the devil's high priority list to put an immediate end to de- to koinonia because he couldn't have it because it was taken away from him, if if he is set on destroying koinonia because he it, it's no longer his, then we're beginning to to see why it ought to be a priority in the church. In 1 John chapter chapter 1 John chapter 1 um we'll we'll notice verses 1 to 4 Listen to this That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life the life was manifested and we have seen 
and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Do you remember that we talked about koinonia, the essence of koinonia's participation, taking part in? When one takes part in something, when they themselves also witness, also see, also touch, also handle, there's participation there. That's, that's why, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, so far for, for this point, I, that's why using visuals for, for seminars is a good thing. <clears throat> I, know, <laughs> I know, because, because it encourages participation, because we're able to see as well as hear what is being said. Um, and so much more. And now we're getting to, for those who are teachers, you understand this. When you're a teacher and you're teaching, vis- visuals are good because you can see. S- speaking and listening, that's obvious. But then even being able to handle, to illustrate it with something tangible that I can place in your hands. Again, that's participation. See, see he's, he's describing koinonia here, sharing something in common. Um, again, verse 3. That which we have seen, we declare to you that you may also have, ah, there it is, fellowship with with us. That you may also have fellowship with us. It's been happening with us as we have seen, heard, and handled. You may also be a part of this. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. But notice now verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with Him... And walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth because we're not sharing in common. We're not, sh- we're not, we're not sharing that, that shared experience. You're talking about, you know, fellowship with him, but walk in darkness. You don't share anything in common, you lie. There is no truth in that. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light... Oh, as he is in the light, a shared experience, participation, we have fellowship with one another, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Notice how it says in the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, it's a shared experience. It's us. It doesn't say it cleanses me from all sin. No. Now he's saying it, it, it cleanses us. It cleanses us. Again, koinonia. Koinonia is a shared experience. And, and when we know something about being forgiven, when we know something about being cleansed from sin, when I experience and receive that and believe it by faith, it becomes a shared experience with you when you experience the same. As redeemed sinners, our common experience is finding redemption in Christ, the forgiveness of sins. And that, when you realize that, it fuels koinonia. It fuels koinonia. So, can you not see why then Satan hates your local church? And he hates family worship at home. Because Satan and every unclean spirit is set against that. Because they forfeited it. They lost it. They lost it. So who fills us with with the urge to skip personal and family worship at home? 
Mm -hmm. Satan and every unclean spirit. Because it's koinonia. They don't want that. What fills you with the urge to talk negatively about the church and its leaders? It's Satan and every unclean spirit. Why? Because in doing so, you're breaking koinonia. Listen to what Ellen G. Wright wrote um, in Review and Herald article dated June 3rd, 1884. Listen to this. If Satan can employ professed believers to act as accusers of the brethren, he is greatly pleased. For those who do this are just as truly serving him as was Judas when he betrayed Christ, although they may do it ignorantly. Listen to this. Satan is no less active now than in Christ's day, and those who lend themselves to his work will represent his spirit. Review and Herald, June 3, 1884. Hmm. And so Satan is no less active today than he was in Christ's day. Why? Because it's his priority. It's his priority. It always has been, and it continues to be his priority. Why? Because he has a short time, and he knows it, and he knows it. And so what breaks biblical koinonia? What breaks it? I want to hear from you. What, 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 do you, what, what would you say, now that we have you know, um, a picture of, of, of biblical koinonia, what would you say breaks koinonia? Gossip? Envy? Envy? Selfishness? Yeah, because think about that. In all these different things, envy and, and gossip and, and what was that? Selfishness. All those things, you see how they interrupt that, that the sharing of something in common. It, it, it cuts it. It breaks it. It, it, it separates it. It, it. it destroys it. Uh-huh. Separation from God. That's right. Yeah. And then, and then Paul even takes out a step further saying that you claim to walk in, in, you know, with God, but you have no fellowship with one another. And so there's that not sharing something in common. Yeah? Those things destroy trust. Trust in each other. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because when there's no trust, how can we share something in common? And the very thing that breaks koinonia, that broke koinonia in heaven is what breaks it on earth as well. And would you agree that a criticizing spirit can break koinonia? Yeah. Criticizing spirit breaks koinonia. Broke it in heaven, and it breaks it here on earth. Hmm. What do we do with, with this? There's a well-known story of, speaks of a pastor who, who preached a sermon on stewardship. And he presented the parable of the talents. And, uh, and he appealed to the congregation to place on the altar of service all the talents and gifts that God had given them. And so after the service, a man approached him and said, Pastor, you know, I'm not a very gifted man, but, you know, I, I don't feel capable of teaching Sabbath school or, or leading out in ministry, uh, you know, or, or anything else that you mentioned here this morning. But, Pastor, I do have one talent. He said, and it may be a talent that may be of some benefit to the church. I don't know. You tell me. And the pastor said, well, what's that? And he said, well, I have the talent of constructive criticism. 
And pastor, um, you know, I can criticize your sermons, criticize the choir, and just about everything that is done, as well as some, as well as each of the members. And and what should I do with my talent, pastor? What what should I do? The pastor remained in silence as he prayed earnestly for wisdom. What should I tell this? And he said, "Hmm. You know, remember what the man with the one talent did in his parable." And the man said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he buried it. Pastor said, that's right, that's right. Well, I suggest you do the same. (laughs) Suggest you do the same. (laughs) You know, if there's, if we also have that one talent, we should do the same. We should do the same. You know, we may not commit gross and horrible sins, but man, how quick we are to criticize others. Second Testimonies, Testimonies, Volume 2, page 466. Listen to what she had to say. (laughs) And um, whoever said um, gossip, well, listen to this. This is a statement that alarmed me and caught my attention. She says, gossipers and news carriers are a terrible curse to neighborhoods and churches. But it's this next sentence that really... (laughs) Really made me, you know, pause for thought here. She says, two-thirds of all the church trials arise from this source. <laughs> Gossip, gossipers. Two-thirds of all the church trials arise from this source. Testimonies, Volume 2, page 466. Yes, two-thirds of all our problems as a church may be due to gossip. Yeah, maybe due to Gossip. And the Bible says clearly that we must not judge because God will judge us. The prerogative to judge belongs to him alone. I know that there's different, different um, context to the word judge. There's, there's, there's different purposes. Uh, there's other contexts where judging is something that is the prerogative of the church uh, as we keep each other accountable. But that's I'm talking about that context. The, t- the context I'm talking about is when we claim to read the heart and the motives of the heart and are incorrect and being able to reach conclusions that are incorrect because we don't know the motives that leads to actions. And God's going to call to attention all those who assist the devil in criticizing others. Um, there's another quote I'd like to share with you from volume, um, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 609. Listen to this. Fault-finding must be rebuked as the workings of Satan. Mutual love and confidence may be encouraged and strengthened in the members of the church. Let all in the fear of God and and with love to their brethren close their ears to gossip and censure. Direct the talebearer to the teachings of the Bible. Bid him obey the scriptures and carry his compliments directly to those whom he thinks in error. Don't be talking to me. If, if you see that this is a concern, a valid concern, have you talked to them? That's what she's saying. This united action would bring a flood of light into the church and close the door to a flood of evil. Thus God would be glorified and many souls would be saved. Mm. So true, so true. So are we fully convinced that the end of all things is at hand? Do we believe that? You know, the coming of Christ is so, so near. And we can pray 
that God would waken within us to realize that in these last days, Satan is directing his hatred and his anger to the bride of Christ more than ever before. And I really believe that it's his priority to not see, to, to halt and to destroy what he has forfeited and lost in heaven. And he's going to go all out to make sure it's not happening in the church. It's not happening within your circle of believers, your community, your body that you belong to. Let's go to another passage here in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Listen to this. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. You see, let's pause there for a moment. Because when you're talking about strangers, you know, you don't know what their journey is. You don't know what they're going through life. You don't know anything about them. And so consequently, you share nothing in common. Because... They're strangers. You, you, don't, you don't identify common points among yourselves. So, so Paul continues. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. In the church, you, do, you should not see one another as strangers and foreigners. You're, you're the body now. You're one together as one. The body of Christ your fellow citizens, he continues, with the saints and the members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, notice, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see how that... that, that that thought, that, that, that concept is being communicated as it's expressed in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse, verse 9, in our priority. That we must be hospitable to one another. That we must have an open house. That we must welcome each other in. At the very heart of that is to realize that we share something in common. We are a family. We are a body. We are one. We are one. And now you can see why God loves the church. We saw already why Satan hates the church. But now we see why God loves the church. Because it's the one place on earth. Think about this. The church is the one place on earth where koinonia can and does happen as it is in heaven. See, in heaven, God sits on his throne Heavenly angels, heavenly beings surround the throne of God. There's unity, there's participation, there's experience that brings them together as one sweet koinonia in heaven. And the reason why God loves the church is because it's the one place on earth, one place on earth where there is that same koinonia as there is in heaven. And now I, I hope that you've been able to to, 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 to catch a glimpse of why this ought to be and must be a priority in the last days. Because if we expect to endure until the end, we cannot do it alone. 
We have to do it together, pressing together in sweet fellowship, in sweet fellowship. So in the closing moments as we ponder these things that that in some way or another, I, I, I'm, I'm sure, I'm almost certain that you've heard these concepts at one time or another. But my prayer is that you have been able to see them all together in one, in one principle, in one concept that identifies the urgency of why we need to be a church in these last days that reflects koinonia. And so let me ask you, as individuals, as individuals, what can you do to facilitate koinonia with people around you? I mean, because think about this. If we wait for koinonia to be initiated and, and by someone else, you know, we might, we might be sitting alone. We might, we might be letting time pass by when it could be used to glorify God as we take initiative to make koinonia happen with those around us. How would you initiate koinonia with people around you so that they're no longer strangers sitting in the same pew, in the same church, in the same worship service, no longer seeing each other as strangers and, and foreigners? No, 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 that's not, the, that's not how the body, the church should be. How can you initiate it? You know where I'm going with this. Let me reiterate the priority. <laughs> Listen to this. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Let me repeat to you with the New Living Translation. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a place to come together. You are absolutely right. There's nothing more conducive to, to koinonia than, than the, that common you know, sense of, of home you know, where my home is open to you so you can step into my, my space, but I want to share it with you. Because I'm not trying to judge or trying to, but I, I'm just saying it as it is. Sometimes gossipers, okay, are motivated um, because they want to ignite the same spirit in others. Do you see what I'm saying? Like they're, they're criticizing and they want to just ignite that same criticizing spirit in others and they go to others to try to, you know, you know, create more drama. But when you all of a sudden confront them and, 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 and they speak to you in that way and then you turn around and say, you know what? They're expecting that you're going to come back with more gossip, right? But instead you say, listen, can we stop right now and pray for that person? I love that. That just throws a bucket of cold water right onto their, their intentions, right? Wow. So responding with the desire to pray for them, yeah. A couple of things that I want to share with you in closing. Um, I'll show th this illustration. Um, whenever I've taught like beginners or, or cradle roll divisions, you know, you, you, you ask kids, how many of you love the, the people of Africa? And all the hands go up. The people of China, all the hands go up. You know, people of India, all the hands go up. You know, kids love the whole world, right? And we sing about, you know, all the children of the world, you know, red and yellow, black and white. And we love, and I was the same way. I, I grew up as a PK, and I, I always loved the people of the world, you know. But then it, when I went to Southern University after my sophomore year, I made a choice to be a student missionary. And I spent a whole year in India with Adventist Frontier Missions. 
And, and it was a very primitive setting. And in that context, I literally um, went native, so to speak. I dressed like the people. I ate with them. I ate like them. My fingers. I, um, I traveled with them. We, 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 we played together. We, we, we traveled together. We, we were on top of trains you know, together. We did all sorts of amazing adventures and experiences together. And at the end of that year, when I left India, I'll never forget how I was at the train station, and I never thought I would emotionally react this way, but I, I wept when I left India. I wept because I was thinking to myself, will I ever see these people again? You know, um, they need Christ so much in this country, and, and, uh, and my heart just wept. I couldn't believe that I was weeping as I did. And, and ever since then, that was over 20 years ago, ever since then, every time I see someone from India, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I'm compelled to want to walk up to them and, and meet them and greet them and, and tell them and share with them the Hindi, the little Hindi I still remember. And, and it brings a big smile to their faces. You can ask my wife, Heidi, how many times I've, we've actually been invited to uh, an Indian family's home to eat a, an Indian meal. Uh, that were absolute strangers, and we met like at Walmart and on the streets. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, I, I took initiative and introduced myself, and, and we had meals in their homes. And, and uh, even till this day, you know, if I see someone dressed in a sari or like Indian, I will, I will go out of my way to want to talk to them and interact with them. Why? Why? My point is this. It's because, because you know, we all, we all had a heart of gold. We, we love as God loves. We all love the whole world. But what makes the difference with the people of India? What makes the difference? See, in my story, it's because I gave of myself to them. I, I poured, you know, of my time and energy and my life, you know, 12 months of my life, I gave to the people of India. And when you give of yourself to someone... You, you come to love them in, in a special kind of way. Imagine, the, imagine if all the people that make up the church would give of themselves to one another and open up their homes and their hearts and share in common all things, uniting us together in the heart of the gospel, which is we've been redeemed, we share that common experience, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we're brothers and sisters. Can you see it? Can you see it? Why this is, must be a priority in the last days? Because the world needs to see, the world needs to see that there is a people on this earth that have their eyes fixed on something beyond what this world has to offer. They're not citizens of any country here on earth, but we are citizens in heaven. And we are united in Christ here on earth. So are you committed today to be able to examine your heart and say, Lord, I want to take this to the next level. I want to take this an extra mile. I want to, by God's grace, be able to initiate koinonia among those people around me that you've brought into my circle of influence. Is that your commitment today? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, once again, we've examined... Um, a simple, common concept, yet, Lord, yet, thank you for giving us an awareness of the necessity that the church needs to be able to 
demonstrate and, and reflect this, this priority in the way that we live, in the way that we live as a church. And Lord, I pray that you would take these concepts and may we be able to have the power of your grace to be able to apply them and to exercise these priorities. Thank you for your blessing. May you be with us the rest of this day as we continue our walk with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.